welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The core of Christianity is very simple. Was the resurrection of Jesus a real historic event or not? If not, then all of this is noise. But what if it actually happened? Teaching team member Jeff Norris brings us this Easter message entitled, The Heartbeat of Jesus, which covers John chapter 20, verses 1 to 9. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We are so glad you're here on this Easter Sunday. How appropriate with the weather that Friday was stormy and Sunday is sunny and beautiful and uh, such a great metaphor for what happened those many years ago. Uh, What an incredible story that God has written. And you know, we are absolutely captivated by stories, good stories. There's something about a good story. There's something about a great storyteller that draws us in, that grips us. My dad was this way, or still is this way. He's still with us. When growing up, my sister and I, uh, we used to be mesmerized by my dad's stories at bedtime. He would just make up stories and we were glued. I don't know that I have that gift that he had because he got it from his dad, my peepaw, who's now with the Lord. He lived to be 98 years old. And he used to tell stories all the time. He was the greatest storyteller. And he would tell stories all the time growing up. And Jennifer, my sister and I, we would just be locked in. And here's the thing, he would tell the same stories over and over again, and we never got tired of it. He, one of the stories that stands out the most is he probably told a hundred times a story of when he was playing baseball in high school and they played, this is the 1920s, and so they played on this huge, massive field that didn't have a fence. And He hit a ball that went so far it got lost in the weeds in the back of the field. And that's the story. That's it, I just told you in seven seconds, eight seconds, he would stretch this thing out for 10 minutes. And I'm telling you, I'm not kidding, every single time, uh, um, Rachel's my wife, Jennifer and I would just be mesmerized. What's gonna happen this time? Is it gonna get lost in the weeds again? Oh, it did, it did, it got lost in the weeds again. How about that, wow. He he was a masterful storyteller. Stories grip us, movies that are great are stories that grip our hearts. I can't tell you how many times, I really and truly cannot tell you how many times I've watched the Back to the Future trilogy. It's the best trilogy ever, I'm sorry to any other trilogies out there, but it's amazing. And I've watched it over and over again because I'm mesmerized by the story. Stories grip us, masterful storytellers amaze us and draw us in. The greatest storyteller of all time is God himself. And the greatest story ever written is actually the story of the whole Bible. The story of the Bible, how do do you view the Bible? Do you view it primarily as just a rule book to see if, you're, if you measure up and if you're good enough for God to accept you? A moralistic playbook? Because what the Bible primarily is, if you, it's, it's primarily a story and if you're not viewing it as a story with the central character being Jesus and the central theme being the glory of God, then you're missing the big picture of the Bible. 
because that's what the Bible is. It's, it's full of all these other short stories and little stories, and yes, there's rules in there, but ultimately, it's a story. And any good story, any great story is gonna have a narrative arc to it. And if you Google this and you look up what are the best parts of a story, if you're gonna make a great story, what do you need to have? And you'll see things like rising action and falling action and climax and conclusion and these kind of things. But the words that I'm gonna use today are that there's four key parts to this great story of the Bible and really any great story. And it's this, there's an intriguing beginning, there's a colossal problem, there's an unlikely hero, and there's a better than imagined ending. And you think about that. Think about any story that has gripped you. At some level, those four things are present. An intriguing beginning, a colossal problem, an unlikely hero, a better than imagined ending. And that's the story of the Bible. Let me show you. I'm gonna use these panels to illustrate for you the, the four, and I'm gonna call them pillars of the Bible story. And think of a, a structure that's being held up by four pillars that if these aren't there, the story collapses. There is no story, there is no structure. But with these four pillow, uh, pillars, the, the story has its, its foundation. So the first pillar is this, it's creation. Now this is hotly debated, right? It's been debated for centuries. It's nothing new to our day and age, but for centuries, is, it, is there intelligent design? Is there a creator? Is there a God who created? Or, or did all these things just come about? Uh, Big Bang Theory, things like this. Evolution versus creation. That's a different sermon for a different day, but it's hotly debated. But I, I will say this. I do believe that if we could have been there in the original creation, and you'll see as we get to the second pillar why I'm saying this, but if we could have seen the original creation and how beautiful and glorious and majestic and splendor it was, we wouldn't doubt that there was a creator. It was so incredibly, breathtakingly beautiful. This image here behind creation that we've put up here is to represent at just the most basic minimal level, life and beauty. Things that we as humans look at today and we, we see flowers and leaves and these kind of things and we see their beauty and we say that's gorgeous and, and we think about the original creation and that's how it was. In the original creation, as Christians, we do believe that God created, that there is this God who spoke creation into being, which is Amazing to think about that there would be a God so big and so powerful and so majestic and so glorious that he could say something and it would happen that he would say, he could say, let there be light and light would appear out of darkness. And that day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, he creates and it's glorious and it's good. And on that sixth day, the pinnacle of his creation, the crown jewel of his creation is us, it's man and woman. And we were created in this first act, if you will, in this intriguing beginning, we were created, all of creation was created to bring glory to God. 
We are created for him to experience and partake in his glory. And man and woman were to be the ones that would, were to reflect that glory the most. That we were made in the image of God. We are to be in perfect communion with him perfect relationship with him, no obstruction between the God of the universe and his creation, nothing in the way, no separation, just sheer bliss and glory with God. So here's the main point of this pillar to take home with you to think about. The glory, splendor, and majesty of God's original creation was more beautiful than we imagine, and it pointed to his glory splendor and majesty. All of creation pointing to his glory. So then we move to the second pillar. By the way, in your bulletin, I've put all kinds of scripture that goes along with each one of these. And I don't have time, not near enough time to refer to each of those, but I would encourage you, it'd be my great, uh, you'd make me happy if you went home and you looked through those passages. And the first one is all, uh, in Genesis 1 and 2. And just after, we don't know how much time had passed, but just after the account in Genesis 1 and 2, we get the second pillar in Genesis 3. And it's, we call it the fall. This is not the season of fall. This is the fall of mankind, meaning what we got here in the first pillar of creation. What we got here in terms of being everything being created for his glory, we basically took that and Adam and Eve, the original humans, the first man and woman, took all that we had, and I say we because we share in this with them. We are born with what is commonly called the Adamic residue, the residue of Adam. We are born into their choice, into their sin. And what they chose was this. They basically looked at what God created and they looked at themselves as image bearers and they looked at the plan and the will and the purpose of God for their lives and they looked at his glory and they said, we would rather have our glory. The wisdom and plan and purpose and will that you have, I would rather operate in my wisdom and plan and purpose and will. And they were tempted by the serpent and the serpent's temptation was essentially that, was to say, you can know everything like God knows. You can be like God. You can have your own glory. And when they took of that fruit and when they chose to push against and break the heart of God and push against his will and his plan and his glory, sin entered the heart of man and it didn't just enter into their hearts and bring great desolation and death to humans, but to all of creation. Scripture talks about how all of creation was subjected to the futility that it was under because of sin, because of the sin of man and woman. And then it says this, that all of creation groans for the day of redemption which is amazing to think about because I want you to pause for a moment. I want you to think about just, just for a moment, what is the most beautiful landscape that you've ever looked at? 
couple of weeks ago when I was preaching, I shared with you guys, if you were here, about how for me, for me it's when it's standing in the Rocky Mountain National Park and looking down 14,000 feet across the valley in all of its splendor and glory. And it's crazy to think that that beauty, as much as it does reflect the glory of God now and point to a creator, it's subjected to the futility of sin. It doesn't look anything like it looked like in, its, in the original creation. It looks kind of like this in the sense of what it used to look like to what it looks like now. Yeah, there's still a little life here that still in part in minimal ways reflects the glory of its creator, but things are in decay. The world is in decay. And most importantly, the human heart is dead spiritually. We have chosen to reject the God, the creator God of glory because we would rather have the mirage of our own glory. I want you to think about a mirror. We're made, you and I are made in the image of God and the re what that means is that we are to reflect him, reflect his glory, his majesty, his splendor. And a mirror reflects, right? And what the fall did is the fall was basically like taking a rock to that mirror and smashing it to where everything now is fractured. Everything is marred. Yes, there's little hints of reflection that are still here, but everything is broken. Most importantly, you and I are broken. Here's the main point to take away from this pillar. The totality, depth, and damage of sin is more extensive than we can imagine and more tragic than we realize. And here's the worst part. We can't do anything about it. We can't change it. There's nothing that we can do. We can't be good enough. We can't be religious enough. We can't, cannot do anything to change this. And so third pillar, we need a hero. We need a rescuer. Why do the Marvel movies capture us so much? Because they, they tell a story of a hero who can do what we can't do. To rescue humanity from a peril that humanity has no power of rescuing themselves from. Every Marvel movie is a microcosm of the story of the Bible because the story of the Bible is that an unlikely hero shows up. An unlikely hero that had been promised from the very beginning, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but was unrecognized because he was so unlikely. This third pillar is, we call it redemption. The redemption that we so desperately need to begin to bring the brokenness back into healing, into restoration, and into renewal. We can't do it, but one came who did. And he was so unlikely. He was, he was not what was expected. The people that did follow God had read the, all the scripture up into that point and they had misinterpreted the scripture. They thought it was this hero who was gonna come and it was gonna be incredibly obvious that it was gonna be a hero who would come in with military prowess and power and would march into Jerusalem and take over the authorities of Rome and sit upon a physical throne and that it would be this glorious militaristic powerful hero 
But the hero that shows up is a carpenter from Nazareth. And he's talking about dying. And he's saying things like, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And he was so misunderstood because what people didn't understand and what people today still don't understand is that we have a huge sin problem that far more than needing military rescuing or governmental rescuing that the Jews so badly wanted back then in Rome is that we need rescuing from ourselves to restore right relationship with God and God with all creation. And so Jesus comes and he does the unthinkable. He does what you and I are completely powerless to do in that he was perfect, he was sinless. Theoretically, there's two ways to get to God, to get back into right relationship with him, to restore to, to what was originally created to be. One is that you never sin and that's impossible. The other is that someone comes and is sinless for you in your place. That's what Jesus did as the son of God. But even that's not enough. He, he had to die because God, yes, he's a God of love and yes, he's a God of grace and mercy, but God is also a God of justice and righteousness. And because he has to be true to his character, he must deal with sin appropriately. And so sin is what brought death into the world. We'll talk about this in a moment as well, but sin deserves death. It has to be punished. And so God, in his grace, scripture says, overlooked a multitude of sins so that at that moment when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he could pour out his wrath on his son, the only person who ever walked the face of the earth who didn't deserve to die, took the full wrath of sin upon himself. And the agony of the cross, as horrible as the physical agony of the cross was, the agony of the cross was most felt and most experienced by Jesus, not in the physical agony, but in what he experienced with the Father. Because you have to remember, this is God's Son, he's eternal. And he has been, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been in perfect unity and communion for all of eternity past. But at that moment on the cross, if you've been in or around the church, you've heard people probably say this before. He cried out on the cross and he said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And what that means is in that moment, in that moment, what happened is that the father turned his back on his son and he had never experienced disunity with the father. And all of eternity past and all of eternity future, the father and the son are in perfect community and unity with one another. But he did that, he turned his back on his son so that he could turn his face to you and me. He took the wrath that you and I deserved so that you and I go free. This is the redemption of this unlikely hero, Jesus. The story didn't end there. There even had to be more. We'll talk about that in a moment as well. But here's the main thought for this pillar. The restoration, righteousness, and glory Jesus won for us in all creation is more splendid than we can imagine and more available than we realize. Let me explain briefly that available than we realize. The reason I put that on there is because so many people think that if there is a God and if I am to know him, then I must 
I must have to do something. I must have to get my act together. I must have to clean myself up morally in some way. There's something that I must do, must be able to do in order to present myself as acceptable to whoever this God is. And the story of the Bible and the story of redemption says that is not true. That the good news of the story of redemption is good. It's, you, you hear it and you go, that can't be that simple. You mean all I have to do is accept his sacrifice and his perfect life on my behalf and believe upon him and all of that is credited to me as if it were my own? Yeah, it's that, it's that simple. You mean just belief? Yes, just belief. Well, it's gotta be harder than that. Don't I have to do something? No, you just believe upon this unlikely hero who did it all in your place. Remember, there's a fourth part to the story. There's a better than imagined ending. Because you'll remember in this picture, you'll notice in this picture, uh, things are beginning to be restored. What was dead here, there's, there's a little bit of life coming back, right? It's not what it was in the beginning, but what Jesus is doing is he's restoring and renewing things. First and foremost, the human heart. He's breathing life back into our dead hearts. He's aligning our hearts to his. We are beginning to learn again what it means to surrender to his will and to his glory and experience the freedom that we were created for in the beginning. But not only that, all of creation through us is beginning to experience what it means to be restored and to be made new through the kingdom of God that is coming now, but just in part. Life is beginning to happen again, but in the fourth part of the story, the part that we call consummation, which is just a fancy word for meaning the end of all things, when this happens is when Jesus is gonna return again. And this time he is gonna come according to the scriptures like they thought he would come the first time. He's gonna come in power, he's gonna come in glory. And for those who are in Christ, it's gonna be a beautiful thing. It's gonna be unimaginable reality. But for those who aren't in Christ, it's not gonna be a beautiful thing and it is gonna be an unimaginable reality, but in a far different way. But what he's doing when he returns is that the kingdom that he's bringing now through his church, in part, he will bring in full and he will reign in fullness, in fullness of glory with his people who are glorified in his presence in this thing that the scriptures call the new heavens and the new earth. And I know this sounds crazy. I was sharing this with a guy one time and he was like, dude, it sounds like you're talking about like something alien. And I said, I understand that. But stick with me because I'm convinced this is true, that Christ is returning and that this ball that we're on called earth is not going anywhere, that what he's actually doing is he's coming to earth and setting up his kingdom for all of eternity and renewing all things. So here's the fourth pillar main thought. The unimaginable becomes reality. The renewal of all things and the full glory of God is realized in the reality of the new heavens and the new earth. Now I want you to notice this picture compared to the first one. This one's even more full. This is more flowers representing more life, more beauty, more glory. What's happening at the end is so incredible that it's even better than what he originally created. What's coming in the new heavens and the new earth is even better than Eden because of the work of Jesus. Now look, that was a 60,000 foot view of the Bible. But that's the story. This is the story of the Bible. Soak in it. Think about it. 
Let it be the heartbeat of your life. Because this whole story, the whole thing hinges upon one heartbeat. Let's zoom in on, on the redemption pillar, that third pillar. How exactly did this unlikely hero Jesus, how did, how did he accomplish for us, how did he win for us this unimaginable reality? Go with me quickly to John 20. John chapter 20, if you don't have your Bibles, it's fine, it'll be on the screen. But John chapter 20, verse one. This is that Sunday morning all those years ago. Christ had been crucified on Friday. He had been in the grave on Saturday and Sunday morning is here. And this is what it says, verse one. Now on the first day of the week, that Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran. I want you to notice how much running is happening in this passage. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, the other disciple is John. John never referred to himself as John. He usually used this language and it was kind of a way to say in that day and time, uh, John was Jesus' best friend, which is really cool. So John, he, he runs to Simon Peter and to John and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. They're still not fully getting here that he's resurrected. They're like, where did they take him? And so there's great intrigue, there's great suspense. There's also this great wondering of like, okay, what's happened here? Could this be true? He said something about raising from the dead, but I, don't, I didn't believe him. Verse three, so Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running. There's a lot of running going on. Here's what I want you to do. We read scripture so often as two-dimensional. We read it as words on a page and we go, okay, that was cool. But I want you to put yourself in the story. Imagine you're there that Sunday morning. Imagine you're Peter and John and Mary Magdalene and you have, if you're Mary, you've, you've seen that he's not there and you're running back and there's all kinds of things in your mind about what's going on here. And then you're Peter and John and you're, you're running to the grave because of this same feeling of anticipation and excitement, but also fear and curiosity. And imagine you're running with them. And by the way, we're keeping up because the average man in first century of Palestine was about five, six. He had short legs. So we're all running with him. We can keep up. Okay. Imagine you're there and you're running together. And then it says, but the other disciple, that's John outran Peter. So Peter had a, I mean, uh, John had a better 40 time than Peter. And they reached the tomb first and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. John was a little hesitant. Then Simon Peter came following him and he went into the tomb. Simon Peter throughout scripture is a bull in a china shop. He shows up, he's like, move John, I'm going in. And he goes in and he saw the, uh, the linen cloths lying there and the, fa the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. As for yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Did you catch that last part? In my Bible, I've circle line, uh, circled and underlined the word must. They did not understand that he must rise from the dead. Now, why is that? 
I mean, it's, it's incredible that Jesus took on the cross what he did, but this unimaginable reality, this, this righteousness and glory and restoration and renewing is not ours if Christ doesn't rise from the dead. But, but why is that? Go with me back to the second pillar. Remember, when sin came into the world, death came into the world, and the penalty of sin is death. So if, you're in, if, you, if you were to look in Genesis 3, as soon as sin comes into the world, God is pronouncing judgment and condemnation and curse upon man and woman and upon creation and upon the serpent. And he says this in chapter 3, verse 19 of Genesis. He says, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's death. Before sin came into the world, there was no death. There was no returning to dust. And so he's saying, look, death is a part of this penalty of sin. It is the penalty, the ultimate penalty of sin. Romans 6.23, the first part of 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. Jesus had to defeat the greatest weapon of the enemy. The greatest weapon of the serpent was he knew that if he could get Adam and Eve to take the fruit, he knew that death was coming. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 and 26 say this, for he must reign, this is Jesus, until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So as amazing as it was that Jesus did what he did on the cross and he took the wrath of sin upon us, there is no hope for us if he doesn't raise from the dead. Also in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, the apostle Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then we Christians of all people should be most pitied because we believe in something that didn't happen. And there's no hope of victory over death. Satan thought he had won. Go back to Genesis again. I don't mean, I just mean in your minds, go with me back to Genesis. Something profound happens in Genesis three. God is so gracious. He is so cool. He is so good. In the midst of pronouncing the curse upon man and woman and the serpent in creation, in the midst of that, there's this little sliver that's really easy to miss of what's gonna happen. God's not up there wringing his hands going, oh no, they've, they've, they've gone against me and they want their glory, what do I do now? No, he had a plan from the very beginning before the foundation of the earth. And here was a plan, Genesis 3.15. Sin is minutes old. And he says this, and he's speaking to the serpent, to Satan himself. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And then he's talking about this offspring of the woman. There's gonna be one who comes from this woman, Satan. He will crush your head and you will strike or bruise his heel. In other words, you're gonna think you won. You're gonna strike his heel, you're gonna bruise his heel and you're gonna think you've won. We give Satan too much credit, by the way. We, we think he's all-knowing. He's not, he's a created being. He's a fallen angel, he's not all-knowing. He doesn't know the story. Can you imagine, can you imagine the celebration that was happening in hell when Jesus died on that Friday? 
Can you imagine the party that was being thrown because they thought the victory was theirs? He had struck the heel, so to speak, of the God of the universe and human flesh, the son of God himself, we have defeated him. And he doesn't know the story. He's forgotten about Genesis 3.15. There's a party going on. The demons are going crazy. And then his heart beats. And don't you know that little heartbeat on Sunday morning of Jesus shook the foundations of hell to where the party and the record player came to a screeching halt, right? And Satan goes, uh, what was that? And then it beat again and again and again. And the crushing of the serpent's head had begun and Satan freaked out. because he didn't know the story and he thought he had won. But when the heart of Jesus began to beat in that millisecond, in that instant, everything changed. Imagine if you will, you're there, you're in the tomb. You're, if there was some way that we could be there and we're looking at the dead body of Jesus and we're weeping over his body because the one that we thought was the hero is dead. And then all of a sudden we see him come to life and it would have been something I think like this. <gasps> he takes this breath and life has come into the grave, but it's not just life for him, it's life springing eternal for all who believe upon him. Because what we know of the third pillar is this, that if you believe upon Jesus, then his victory over death becomes our victory over death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. His power over sin becomes our power over sin. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His moral record becomes our moral record. His holiness, our holiness, his purity, our purity, his ascension, our ascension, his direct access to the Father, our direct access to the Father. Listen, do not miss this. The greatest news, the greatest news of the Bible story, of the Easter story, is that we have a God who raises his people just like he rose his son with every reality that was his becoming ours. And if it's true, if it's true, if he really rose from the dead, and if all this is true, this story, then it changes everything. It's not something that we can afford to look at and go, well, I mean, that's cool. If Jesus's heart began to beat, and is still beating for all of eternity, and he offers the same heartbeat to us, it changes everything. How do you respond to the resurrection? What do you do with it? That's the critical issue. The issue is not so much Jesus' teachings, whether, you're not, whether or not you like them or not. The critical issue is, did he raise from the dead? And if he did, which I'm convinced he did, otherwise I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, then it changes everything about me, about you, and about this world and what we live for. No longer our glory, 
his and his alone. This Easter, think about the heartbeat of Jesus. His heart beats for you. Praise be to God. Father, thank you for your word, this Bible that tells us the greatest story ever written. Thank you that you wrote this intriguing beginning, that you knew the colossal problem was coming and your plan was to send a very unlikely hero that most of the world would not know or recognize. To do the unthinkable and to do the unimaginable, to take our wrath for us and defeat our death for us that we may share with him in all of his glory for all of eternity. Thank you that you're coming again, that this unimaginable reality of the new heavens and new earth is the hope in the future, the sure hope for those who believe. Awaken hearts this morning, O oh God. Open eyes to see the beauty of this story the central character of Jesus and the central theme of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.